Conservatives have complained for years that they've been unfairly banned from social media platforms. Now a federal judge is banning parts of the government from communicating with social media platforms. A Trump-appointed judge issued a preliminary injunction as a part of a lawsuit over how much involvement the federal government can have with content on social media platforms. Now this injunction forbids the Biden administration from communicating with those platforms about what the judge calls protected free speech, specifically viewpoint discrimination for the purposes of trying to remove it. The judge dramatically said such actions may constitute the most massive attack against free speech. Native American advocates are calling on universities built on tribal lands to make reparations for massive plots of land, they say, was unjustly taken for tribes for university campuses, including the University of Minnesota, which occupies over 94,000 acres, sold to it for a fraction for what it is worth. Native American tribes say it's time for universities to pay up. Now, the United States attempted to provide reparations to Native Americans before Showing its gratitude for those that served in World War II in 1946, Congress created the Indian Claims Commission and through that commission paid out more than $1.3 billion to Native Americans. An Oklahoma judge threw out a lawsuit Friday that sought reparations for victims and descendants of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, thwarting efforts by local advocates to seek justice for the attack's last three living survivors and the Tulsa residents or Tulsa community at large. Lawyers for the survivors of the Greenwood massacre are holding a press conference today and they are vowing to fight what they say is an outrageous decision. Nearly two years after Congress finalized the first in a series of measures to improve the nation's aging infrastructure and combat climate change, some of the GOP lawmakers who originally tried to scuttle the spending are now welcoming it. They have privately courted newly available federal money to improve their local roads, bridges, pipes, ports, and internet connections. And they are publicly celebrating when their cities and states have secured a portion of the aid. The hard right Freedom Caucus voted to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene, a conservative rabble rouser who in recent months allied herself with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy following a spat she had with another member of the group. Well, colleges are now scrutinizing race-based financial aid. This comes after the affirmative action ruling by the Supreme Court. In particular, the Missouri Attorney General just announced that after the high court's ruling that he had put dozens of universities and municipalities across the state of Missouri on notice to immediately cease any use of what he calls illegal discriminatory race-based policies. Now, Attorney General Andrew Bailey, a Republican, has said that institutions in that state must stop using race-based standards to make decisions about things such as admissions, scholarships, programs, and even employment. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, I'm joined by two brilliant contributors and some of the best in the business. That's Christopher Walton, a former chair of the Democratic Party of Milwaukee, and Dr. Omi Congo-Dabinga. 
He is a lecturer at American University and the author of a new book called The Lies About Black People. And in hour two today, we're going behind and beyond the headlines to do a deep dive on reparations. Uh, looks like no matter what page you turn, what newspaper you pick up, what social media site you go to, there is a story about reparations. And California just released its much-anticipated report where it has over 115 recommendations on how the state of California can make good or repair the harm that was done to African-Americans in California as a result of slavery and the systemic exclusion of Blacks on the basis of race. And we're going to talk to Professor Carlos Hill about that decision by a state court in Tulsa to throw out the last surviving lawsuit uh, that was designed to compensate the survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. But before I bring my guest on, here's what I'm thinking in real time. I don't know if you saw this story, but older women, mostly white conservative women in Florida are finally, and I do say finally, outraged with Governor Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. Now, this is why they are mad at the governor. Governor DeSantis signed a controversial measure that overhauls the permanent alimony structure in the state of Florida. This new law effectively ends permanent alimony. That's those payments that ex-husbands typically pay to ex-wives uh, you know, to support them. And this new bill sets up a process for ex-spouses who make alimony payments to seek modifications, particularly when these older ex-spouses want to retire. So apparently right now in the state of Florida, a, a woman could receive alimony until she dies. And men have been complaining that this is forcing them to work past retirement to continue to make these alimony payments. Now, a coalition of mostly older women who receive pay, uh, permanent alimony, uh, they are a part of a group called the First Wives Advocacy Group. They assert that their lives will be upended without the payments. These women are livid. They say on behalf of the thousands of women who our group represents, we are very disappointed in the governor's decision to sign the alimony reform bill. We believe by signing it, he has put older women in a situation which will cause financial devastation. Now, they say the so-called party of family values has just contributed to the erosion of the institution of marriage in Florida. Now, that's a statement by a 63-year-old Boca Raton woman who founded the uh, First Wives Advocacy Group. Uh, uh, others go on to say that DeSantis has impoverished all the older women of Florida. Uh, this woman says she knows at least 3,000 women across the state who are switching to the Democratic Party. She says these women are ready to mobilize, they're ready to organize, and they are going to campaign against Ron DeSantis. Now, this is another Republican woman who receives permanent alimony. When I read this story, I was laughing. I was scratching my head. I had so many mixed emotions. Obviously, I am not in favor of impoverishing thousands of women, women in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who have depended on this money 
who now may not be able to support themselves. Obviously, that's a problem. But here's a bigger problem. These women who are so outraged, who now say they're going to vote Democratic, have been staunch supporters of Ron DeSantis. They supported him when he was banning books. They supported him when he was banning abortions, when he was making it more difficult for women in the state of Florida to exercise their reproductive uh, rights, their rights to you know, control their bodies. They were supporting him when he was preventing teachers from saying gay in the classroom and passing laws that discriminated against the LGBTQ community. They supported him when he was dismantling the teaching of black history in schools. And it wasn't until he messed with their coins that he came for what they call their money, their livelihood, their financial support, that they decided to stand up and to challenge Ron DeSantis. I don't know what to make of these women. Now, obviously, we welcome them to the Democratic Party. We welcome them uh, to vote for Democratic candidates and not to vote for Ron DeSantis for governor or president or whatever a job he may be uh, running for, but I don't know if we can trust these women. These are the same women that have supported Ron DeSantis. They've supported Donald Trump. These are the women that we thought might vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, this is a story that I'm going to follow because I am a lawyer and I'm just generally interested in what happens on this issue, particularly because it relates to marriage. But I hope these women are sincere and I hope that they realize now that when someone like Ron DeSantis comes for any group, that they should stand up for that group because their interests might also be uh, the next issues that a governor like Ron DeSantis comes for uh, more when we come forward on GBLA Talk 1580. You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time. I'm your host, Ariva Martin. In this hour, to help me break down what's happening in the news are my contributors, Christopher Walton. He is the former chair of the Democratic Party of Milwaukee and Dr. Omikanga Dabinga. He is a senior lecturer at American University and he's the author of a new book, The Lies About Black People. Welcome back, Christopher, and welcome back, Dr. Dabinga. Uh, as you both can see, I don't know what to think of these white women <laughs> who are getting their alimony cut off, who now say they are no longer Republican, that they're going to vote Democratic. Christopher, how often in your uh, job as the Democratic Party chair did you see voters like these women who get upset because there's a piece of legislation passed that impacts them personally and decide they're going to switch parties? But they, they won't stand up for the rights of others, but when it hits them in the pocketbook, they have a change of heart. Have you seen this happen? Uh, I have a party chair. I have. I definitely saw this happen, especially right after 2016. Suddenly everybody discovered politics. Everybody discovered how important it was and how much of an effect it could happen. You know, I, you know, welcome, welcome ladies. Better <laughs> late than never. We love to have you bring your votes, bring your friends. Also, since you were probably collecting thousands of dollars a month in alimony, do feel free to donate as well. We'd love to have you. Um, better late than never, I say, especially in a state like Florida. If we can get the ladies to rally up, maybe we can bring Florida back from the abyss and, and make it a blue state again. Yeah, you know, right about it. You know, and I said, hey, we welcome any Democratic voters, but I don't know, Dr. DeBing, if we can trust these women. 
you know, we we oftentimes uh, point to white women as that demographic that we think we're going to be able to form allyship with around mm-hmm. issues like mm-hmm. reproductive rights and other issues. And we are often disappointed by how they vote and how they show up. Do you think this might be one of those instances? I I don't. I feel like this is going to be a situation where we are going to see a lot of hypocrisy because some of these people are never Biden, never Kamala. I mean, are they re- are, are some of these women really going to consider voting for a black woman vice president again? You know, some you know, racism has a as a as a way of trumping so many other things, pun intended. And so I feel like these may be the type of women who are going to say what say this in outrage right now because this has been going on for years, but are going to go to the booth and and hold their nose and think about all of the other issues and still decide to go go with DeSantis. And like you said, we saw it with Hillary and we've seen it with so many other issues. And so it's unfortunate that they are so caught up in their own personal issues that that's all they can see. But we've been here before. And I think that they're going to do the same thing again. I think they're talking a good game, but I'm not I'm not optimistic. Hopefully yeah, I mean, the, I, I guess the I, what has me so perplexed by the story is the level of, of you know, self-interest and, uh, you know, you only care about an issue when it impacted you. you. You don't have any empathy for the, you know, the kids who are in schools who can't be taught history or the, you know, the LGBT community that's being attacked. None of that matters. But come for your check. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're outraged at this governor. <laughs> that's a level of, of selfishness and, uh, you know, that I guess is real. And I shouldn't act so shocked and surprised by it, Chris, but it it, it bothers me. It really bothers me. And I, I would hope that as voters and Americans, we have more empathy for our fellow man and woman that we vote in ways that aren't just about things that impact us, but impact our community and impact our democracy. Right. Okay. That's my wishful thinking for the day. Okay. Let's talk about the Republican attorney general in Missouri. Now, Chris, he says, not only better the schools in Missouri better not be using colleges and universities race to admit students. You better not be using race to give out scholarships or financial aid. And he, he includes things like programs and employment. And the lawsuit filed was about affirmative action and admissions. I don't remember there being anything in that decision that said universities can't use race in programs and employment. Do you anticipate Republican attorney generals around the country to try to stretch the affirmative action uh, in college admissions to go even further? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They're already making those plans. They've been planning these things. Uh, In the state of Wisconsin, for example, the Speaker of the House just recently came out and said he wants to get rid of the minority uh, scholarship program in the state of Wisconsin. And it was literally set up to help minority students who did not have the financial means to continue to go to college. This has nothing to do with affirmative action. This is literally just money set aside to help black and brown kids go to school. He wants to get rid of that from the state of Wisconsin. This is a full-blown effort that is continuously going across this country. And I, you know, every, uh, every election is constantly me screaming, this is the most important election. Right. And every time it's proven to be true. I just need everybody else to see it. It is always proven to be true because now we're looking at them. They're going to go after every racially, every racial program, every race incentive program, every scholarship, every single thing they can go after to try and rip apart 
They're going after. And this is another situation where, honestly, it's going to hurt black people and brown people, but it's going to hurt white women too. Because white women have made the most advances from affirmative action. So, ladies, it's time. Yeah, no. I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, they need to understand. Now, they didn't make the connection, uh, Dr. Dabinga, on affirmative action that obviously they made on alimony, but <laughs> you're on a college campus, and there are lots of programs that are targeted to help minority students, as Chris mm -hmm. just said. Are you seeing colleges, or do you anticipate seeing colleges start to eliminate those programs? And what is that going to mean for those economically disadvantaged students that just happen to be black and brown? Well, I think that for states that are blue in Washington, D.C. as well, you know, you're going to have situations where there are going to be lawsuits and the like, and, and, and schools are going to have to come out and vocally and verbally say that this is our commitment to, you know, to continue what we're doing. But in these red states where you have a lot of black and brown students as well, you know, going back to what Chris was talking about Wisconsin, you have the legislators there who are threatening the whole University of Wisconsin system to get rid of all of their DEI programs or lose millions of dollars in funding, which is going to lead to tuition increases and other things like that. There are about close to 200 jobs that are on the chopping block there that have to do with DEI. So that's going to, that's not in increases in tuition for just black and brown students, that's going to be everybody. So once again, we see a situation where policies like these are designed to hurt black and brown people, but by default are going to hurt everybody. And if, if white people haven't started to figure it out now, uh, you can't just have this mentality, you know, if I'm white, I'm going to be okay. They are going to come for you. And they not, not they're going to, they are. I and hear. so what we have to have, one thing I love about what's happening right now is I love the fact that more lawyers and, and civic organizations are being extremely vocal about the lawsuits that they're bringing up, like challenging legacy admissions and all of that. And these Republicans, whenever a law gets passed, like overturning affirmative action, they already got their proposed legislation ready to go. Same thing they did with Roe v. Wade. They introduced it at midnight, you know, and we got to be more strategic in having our, 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 our systems already in place when these things happen, because they are not going to stop. Yeah, that's such a great point. Uh, the, the concept of exposure, and I've been having this conversation with a lot of folks, and it's really that Republicans are going so far. I mean, the they are going so far. Do you think, Chris, because they are coming for everybody, gay, you know, gay kids, gay adults, trans folks, uh, you know, college students, the the Supreme Court? basically, you know, over, or not basically, but denying Joe Biden an opportunity to relieve $20,000 of student loan debt and Republicans, you know, applauding that decision, applauding the fact that college students won't be able to have that debt relief. Do you think there's going to be a backlash? I mean, we saw it at the midterm elections with abortion, uh, the backlash that caused, you know, us to uh, hold back the number of Republicans that thought they were going to be uh, voted into Congress. Do you think there's going to be a, a just an uprising of folks saying, wait a minute, these Republicans are taking this country back to a time that nobody, it wasn't when it was great. America was not great 50 years ago. Women didn't have rights. Minorities didn't have rights. Poor people uh, didn't have, you know, a, a voice at the, at the table. Do you think we're going to see a backlash? I absolutely expect it. I absolutely expect it. And, you know, I, it's already growing right now. We just had the Supreme Court election in the state of Wisconsin this past spring. A state of the state of Wisconsin, which has been like a one point race in every race since ever. Mm -hmm. We just won 
and flipped the state Supreme Court into the liberal direction by 11 points. That's a backlash. We kept our governor last year who won by three points. That's a Wisconsin landslide. That's a backlash. And it's only going to continue coming. You know, Ohio has that election, that that spring election that they just put on the ballot, not spring election, special election. They just put on the ballot in August to try and change how many votes it takes to actually put a constitutional amendment in the state constitution because they know they don't have the majority of the population on their side trying to ban abortion. So they want to change that, what the limit it is to get the amendment on the ballot. And then there's actually an amendment on the ballot this upcoming November. So if they don't get out there and vote in August to say, no, we don't want this to be changed. A majority should rule the state of Ohio. Then when it gets to November, they're going to ban abortion because not because most people don't vote for uh, in favor of it, but because they don't have 60% of the vote or they don't have 70% of the vote, whatever the, the the state legislature in Ohio decides is the appropriate amount of votes you need to pass a state constitutional amendment. And Dr. Bigger, you're on the college campus, so you see young people. So uh, in the news, one of the things I talked about earlier was the fact that voters under 35 years of age, they are experiencing this you know, this Supreme Court, this this mm-hmm. Roberts Court mm-hmm. that is, you know, making rulings contrary to the way they think on issues that they care about, like climate change, like gun violence, yeah. like immigration, yeah. like abortions. So they, many of them are, are growing up in an era where they thought some of these laws like Roe v. Wade would be uh, untouchable, or, you know, they, they right. thought they would last, you know, indefinitely or into infinity. Do, what are you seeing on these college campuses? Do you see folks who might have otherwise been conservative saying, I've got to join with liberals? We have to stop what's happening in this country? I'm definitely seeing some of that. I'm, de- yeah, I'm definitely seeing some conservative students who don't have a problem with some of the things that are that are happening because they feel like they're in a position. You know, you can outlaw, you know, a- abortion, but rich people are going to be able to get it. You know, you can outlaw various things on the college campuses. They're still going to be able to get access. So those folks who feel like they're going to be fine no matter what. But I am definitely encountering, you know, other conservative students who basically have the mindset of, you know, I may not agree with you on some policies, but I be- agree with your ability to live. You know, to be able to do the things that you want to do in your life without being targeted by the government in many ways, shapes and forms. And they see a lot of things that are happening as an overreach. And so even, you know, my last semester, I had students, I had them say, I asked them a question. I want you to think about all of the rights that you have either lost or have been are being challenged just since the beginning of our semester in January. Mm-hmm. Because just between January and May alone, the amount of anti-LGBT and trans legislation that was proposed went from 182 to over 500, wow. when there were only about 200 all of last year. And so, like daily, and I'm like you all, and like I've experienced racism as a black man in America, but I've always had certain freedoms. Like y'all are literally about to not grow up with the freedoms I experienced in this country, despite all of the other drama. Y'all should be upset about that. And my older students you know, sophomores, juniors, seniors, they get it because they've been experiencing their freedoms and, and are just starting to see them drop one by one by one. I mean, you know, things like voter IDs laws and not being able to vote with your student ID, like various things like that. And uh, many have gone into the summer very in, in, informed and very intent on being active. And it's not just uh, the liberal students. I'm so encouraged to hear that when we come forward, we want to talk about the Freedom Caucus and the disarray that they are in, and these Republicans who are now trying to celebrate the infrastructure bill that they voted against. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. 
<laughs> you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin. We are tracking today's trending news. And I have two of my favorite contributors helping me break down this news so that you can have a better understanding of it. Christopher Walton is here and Dr. Omikongo Dabinga. All right, Chris, the Freedom Caucus. They have a reputation of challenging the established Republicans in the Congress. They've run a speaker out. They, they've been pretty effective. They right now appear to be in total, total disarray because Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, I guess she called Lauren Boebert a, a name. And they've been fighting with each other. And now Marjorie's been put out of the caucus. And uh, Jim Jordan says he supports Marjorie. So, I mean, it looks like a one big family feud going on in this Freedom Caucus. What do you make of this? You love to see it. <laughs> you love to see it. Say, get the box of popcorn, huh? <laughs> Sit back. Let's just exactly. enjoy the ride. I am in no position or interest in stopping the Republicans from fighting each other. Any day they want to lay out all the family drama and throw it all on the front lawn, I would love to see somebody throwing clothes out from Speaker McCarthy's office, <laughs> throw it all out there on the right on the front grass of the Capitol. I am perfectly fine with that because they get every they've earned everything they deserve, and so I love to see this. Um, in <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene, you got you were too crazy for the Freedom Caucus. <laughs> yeah. You you got ran off the funny farm. So <laughs> what exactly is that saying about about you? And the fact that her and Lauren Boebert, the two who were cheering each other on the State of the Union, screaming at the president, like they had lost it. Well, obviously, um, had lost their minds. You know, this is this is what happens. This is what happens when you elect unserious people to serious positions. Yeah. You see it. You go to a circus. You're gonna see a clown. This is what is yeah. happening right now. Yeah, you you just raised a really good point. You're sending unserious people to Congress. You're sending people who don't have an agenda other than to be disruptive, other than to get on Fox News, other than to have a you know a, a social media post go viral. Mm -hmm. They don't have a, an agenda or the I would even say the intellect to serve in Congress and to be a representative of the people. And now they're all trying to out-trump the other. You know, who can prove to be the most extreme? Who can prove to be the most Trumpian? And, you know, taking each other out in the process, is, it's really embarrassing. I, I know what you're saying. As a Democrat, it's not our job to police the Republicans. And if they want to destroy their own party, uh, you know, more power to them. But it, it really is disgusting because they do represent folks uh, in their states, people who legitimately are depending on them to do something productive. Uh, and, and Dr. Along that line, Dr. Uh, Omikongo, uh, Dr. Dominga, I saw Chris Christie over the weekend. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Tore in to Donald Trump said that he has no agenda other than to, to basically to promote himself, to continue to litigate this already litigated issue that he won the 2020 election is only in the 2024 election to feed his ego. Uh, and I mean, he's come after him in the most aggressive way we've seen any of the other candidates. Do you think it's resonating with those voters in the Republican Party that want to do something other than support Donald Trump? 
I don't, I don't think so. And the reason why I, I don't think so is because everybody knows Chris Christie doesn't have a chance of winning. Uh, you know, he's in that category with, you know, Asa Hutchinson and, and the like. And so I feel like people who are more on our side of, of things or people who are never Trumpers are definitely going to, you know, appreciate what he's saying. But I feel like for the people who have been pro-Trump or, you know, from the beginning, it's not going to move the needle with them. The things that are going to move the needle with them, for many of them, are going to be things like getting arrested, you know, going to prison, uh, you know, and seeing that <laughs> Donald Trump's not really paying your legal fees. Like, when the stuff really starts to hit them directly, I, I think that's when it's going to happen. And particularly if Trump continues to not respond to Chris Christie outside of some random, like, you know, social media posts and stuff like that. That's why I think Donald Trump's not going to show up at the debates until he absolutely has to, because he doesn't want to give uh, Christie an opportunity to continue to attack him personally. So I think that as long as Trump continues to kind of generally avoid him, Christie's going to say what he wants, but I don't think it's going to resonate because many people who support Trump also look at Christie as a traitor. I mean, he put Jared Kushner's father in jail, you know, all in prison, you know, there's a whole bunch of things. And so when he turned on Trump a few months ago, that was when they were done with him and he became a traitor in their eyes. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, Chris, do you, you have any sense that Chris Christie will be able to break through uh, to any of those, what I'm going to call more moderate Republicans that have not been, you know, supportive of, of Trump? Chris Christie stands as much chance as Chris Walton. Let's get in the Republican presidential nomination. I love you. You're so matter of fact. You're like, no. <laughs> it, it's not happening. But uh, you, again, love to see it. Throw as many punches, throw as many haymakers as you can. Get them all bloodied up. And then <laughs> hand them over to us. We'll finish all right. I, I'm going to get your opinion on this. You know, I just was perusing the news as I do all day. Hill Harper. Beloved actor, Harvard Law School graduate. Uh, he's thrown his hat into this Michigan's 2024 race uh, to run to the left of moderate Democrat Elisa Slotkin. Uh, they say it's going to be an uphill battle for him. But, you know, what do you make of, of Hill Harper? I guess there have been rumors that he was going to get into this race for a while now, but he's made it official. I generally have a strong stance on people in the acting community getting into politics. You I've have seen, a, a strong stance pro or against? Against. Okay. Because I've seen it at least twice now with Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. And it just <laughs> is not a... Didn't turn out well in either of those cases. <laughs> so I'm just generally not... Don't forget Arnold. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger. California, please stop electing these people. <laughs> I'm I'm generally against actors being involved in politics. Um, you know, you can play it on, you can play president on a movie, but then when you actually have to hit, the rubber hits the road, this may not be the job for you. Well, okay, let's just be fair to Hill Harper. He he's no Ronald Reagan, he's no Donald Trump, he's no Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's he's he says he's going to run to the left. He's going to try to activate. Uh, Dr. Dabinga, you know, activists and organizers, and he may pull, you know, majority of the black vote. Uh, what do you make uh, of him in this election? I, I get a little weary hoping that it doesn't damage uh, whoever's going to go on to be the the final, uh, you know, who wins the, the, the general election and has to go against a Republican in Michigan, because we can't stand, we can't afford to lose that seat. But what do you make of Hill Harper getting into this race? 
Yeah, I think, you know, we definitely have, I definitely have concerns when, when celebrities, you know, throw, throw their name into the ring like that. Uh, you know, yeah, Jesse Ventura, um, the one out of Minnesota, the comedian uh, as well. Uh, yeah, of course, you know, also Dr. Oz and the like. I believe that they can be more, that cause more problems than they can solve. Having said that, though, everybody deserves a chance. And there are a lot of Democrats who are just really upset right now. They're upset with uh, the fact that Biden's not going to even consider uh, expanding the Supreme Court. They have issues with other things that are going on. I'm sure that he's probably going to have issues on policing that are to the left of the current senator. And so there's a very young, and you see Gavin Newsom's kind of well, playing. And, and I'm sorry, let me make, well. let me correct. So Elise Slotkin and Hill Harper are going to be running for a Senate seat in Michigan. Elisa now is a congresswoman. Mm -hmm. So who whose seat is this, Chris, that they're running for? Is this this is, this is currently Debbie Stabenow's seat? Okay. And she's been there since like 2000. And she's not running. So it's an open seat. So you got this three-term congresswoman mm -hmm. running in this race now with Hill Harper. Yeah, I think that really at the end of the day, I just hope that whatever happens in that race, that eagles don't clash and that mm -hmm. whoever becomes the front runner they coalesce because, you know, Michigan has done a lot of great things. Not everything is run by Democrats there, and we can't afford to lose a scintilla of any type of influence and power that we have. And so I'm very interested to see what Hill, Hill Harper does, but just that he's trying to run to the left, you know, of, of, you know, where Democrats are now, there's a Democratic base that is willing to support him because they feel like Biden's not doing enough. Um, they probably might feel the same way about uh, Governor uh, Whitmer as well. And we're going to see what happens as he relates to that. But I hope whatever influence that he garners, he supports whatever Democrat becomes the main candidate if it's not him. My, yeah, my and Chris, go ahead, because I was going to ask you, how does this complicate things for the party? Because the established Democratic Party is obviously going to support and has already vowed their support for the congresswoman. So does that put Dems in a difficult position, particularly with black voters? I don't think so, because of, you know, we have a track record of fighting each other. We're Democrats. This is all we do. If we spent time fighting each other, if we spent that time fighting Republicans, they'd only be Democrats. So this is what we kind of do. Um, my only, my only, you know, everybody has a chance to run. More power to you. If you are willing to put your hand on the wheel and try to drive the car to a better place, more power to you. We will absolutely support you. Uh, as far as this primary goes, I, I, a, a primary can be helpful sometimes. Yeah. When it's helpful. As long as they're not out trying to hurt each other, they're out taking swings at each other, um, it can be very helpful. And I think it can actually galvanize people to show up because, yeah. you know, big election coming. My only, I, go ahead. Your only concern, what's your concern? My only concern is that if you, you know, Michigan ain't Massachusetts. Mm. You can't run too far to the left and still stay where the general center of Michigan is. Right. So, you know, of course, push the issues, run on the issues that you care about and are concerned about, but don't outrun the state. Or at least pick but, another state to run in where your politics may align better. That is great advice, because I was going to say one thing that Hill Harper may do is he may push the congresswoman further to the left on some of those issues you mentioned, uh, Dr. Dabinga, like policing, but as Chris just said, Michigan ain't Massachusetts, so yeah. we cannot get too far ahead uh, of where that state is because we could lose that Senate seat, which would be disastrous for Democrats. When we come forward, I want to talk about these Republicans who are taking credit and celebrating the infrastructure money pouring into their states that they had absolutely nothing to do with. 
Stay with us. KBOA Talk 59. We're back and we are tracking today's trending news. And one of the stories that caught my attention is the story about these GOP lawmakers, the same folks who tried to scuttle and wouldn't vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Now that millions and in some places billions of dollars are pouring into their states, cities and counties, these same Republicans who gave Biden hell are now publicly celebrating and literally trying to take some credit for all of this federal money uh, for local bridges and roads and pipes and ports and high-speed internet. All right, Chris, so is this the game? Vote against it, but if it passes and money comes into the state and jobs start to get created and people get excited, then take credit for it. You know, we've never known Republicans to be shameful people. <laughs> they they don't possess that. Um, they don't possess Shaheim, I guess. I don't know. Um, you know, you got Congress, you got Congresswoman Michelle Steele out in California, you got Ken Colbert, people who are literally voting against everything that the president puts forward, infrastructure bill, voted against the Inflation Reduction Act, voted against the original stimulus package that he came in and put it in place. But they love him to death when it comes to the give me that money. So I, me personally, I'd love to see a, a law put in place. If, if you voted no, mean it. Yeah. No. You don't get any money in this district because you said no. That's what yeah, you said. Yeah, I know. But that would penalize the voters and, and the residents and the constituents that you know aren't responsible for the stupidity of their representatives, right? So we should not be blamed. Gotta, make, gotta, pick, better, uh, gotta pick better people then. Uh, yeah, I hear you. Obviously, it is not right, uh, Dr. Domingo, for these folks to be out celebrating and acting like they did something when they are, as Chris said, voting against everything that the president does. Uh, but I don't know. Let's let's put the onus on the Democrats. Should the Democrats be out reminding voters in that district that your representative that's standing there now at that press conference, that's standing there with that shovel, that's standing there taking credit, voted against? Uh, this bill, and but for the foresight of Democrats and others, this money would not be flowing into your district. They should be doing that every single day. <laughs> uh, you know, I heard one one host say that one of the reasons why you know re Republicans don't want these rural areas and stuff to have broadband and high speed internet and the like is because they may start listening to different news sources. You know, <laughs> as opposed to getting the same funneled information from their favorite politician or, or talk show host, and you know, on AM radio. That's one of the problems. Is that you know, it kind of goes off of Chris's point. You know, is that. They, if they were, so if these voters were sophisticated enough to really understand that these politicians they keep putting into office don't represent their interests, then they would be more likely to challenge them and mm -hmm. really say, we need this road, we need this bridge. What are you doing? I mean, you got people like Tuberville and, 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 and Marjorie Taylor Greene voting against this stuff, but going online, promoting these things. So, so I'm glad that Biden is going to these districts. I think he was already in uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's ones, or, he, or he's going to it, keep going there. And, you know, Jamie Harrison, y'all got to be more strategic about reminding them every single day that Democrats did this and put up the legislation that the, the Republicans have proposed for infrastructure. Oh, what? There's nothing there. Like, actually show the blueprint, show the plan, and say, you know, who do you want to build this road, to build this school, to build this hospital? If you want this to continue, 
This is where your vote needs to go. But the Republicans yeah. are so much stronger on making it about identity politics and the culture wars that people have forgot about their own basic needs because they're focused on the preservation of whiteness. Right. Hey, Great hey, point. There's a really good um, example of what this infrastructure bill did. The freeway fell down in Philadelphia. Yeah. Large part, I-95, a major artery for this nation. They got it back up in two weeks because the president has put money into Pennsylvania, which allowed them to immediately put all these trucks, all this infrastructure, the whole state of Pennsylvania, the federal government, the city of Philly, all came together and got the road back up That's that quickly. Right. That needs to be on every campaign ad in the Pennsylvania area and around the nation. And all the jobs that that created, right? All the income that goes in, all the money that gets poured into these states, these cities, these counties. So I get so frustrated when I hear people say, well, Biden ain't done nothing. Are you yeah. insane? Like, are you like, where have you been? That, the money from infrastructure is so massive. I, I mean, I've been at conferences where mayors talk about all the money that's pouring into their city. So we, we just got to get that word out uh, because it is game changes, transformative. Uh, before we go again, I guess I'm fascinated with these Republicans fighting with each other, Chris, because another big story is Donald Trump is really hot with Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. He said, look, Kim, you better figure out which side your bread is buttered and who's buttering that bread because she's cozying up with Ron DeSantis saying she's going to stay neutral in this presidential race. And Trump went on, on his uh, true social and said, don't forget, girlfriend, that I endorsed you. I came to your state and rallied with you and helped you come from behind to win your race. And now you're going to cross me and suggest that you're wow. not going to endorse me. You know, Trump doesn't stand for disloyalty, even though he's disloyal to everybody. <laughs> What's Kim going to do? Because Trump, and you know, he, he had made it plain that Kim Reynolds, you better get with the program. You know, I, I won't he do it. I just, <laughs> just love this. Won't she do it? That's how Won't she do it? I love how this is going. I just, you know, Kevin McCarthy also has an endorsement. I know that is rubbing in the wrong way. There are a lot of people that haven't endorsed yet. So I think he should go down every single list of who has not endorsed him yet and just start picking them off one by one because they are showing disloyalty to the Cheeto. And people demand that they all show how loyal they are. So when we get to the general election next year, we can remind people who their loyalties lie to. They don't lie to you. They don't lie to Ohio. They don't lie to Texas. They lie to Donald Trump. Yeah, and, and I don't know why these folks call Donald Trump in because they know once he does a rally for you or endorses you or does a social media post, you owe him your life. You owe him your, you know, your firstborn child, your blood. You owe him everything. And that's how he thinks about politics. He's so transactional. So mm -hmm. he says, look, Kim, I was in your state to help you. And how dare you not support me? How dare you not endorse me in this concept of remaining neutral? That's completely unacceptable to him. Okay, Dr. Bing, I'm going to give you the last word. All right. Republicans fighting each other. Does it help? Joe Biden, or do we just need to stay focused on our own <laughs> drama? Because we got enough of it in the Democratic Party for sure. 
it definitely helps Joe Biden, and he needs to spend that this time where he doesn't have to attack the Republicans because they're attacking each other, building the Democratic coalition, making sure that he's getting rid of all of this talk about being too old, you know, meeting with those who might provide some type of opposition to him, not in terms of running, but in just some, some of the things that they say. And just let people know, as Chris said in the beginning, every election, next election is the most important, reminding them of, of what needs to come. And him and Vice President Harris need to be focused on, there's a lot of things they can do internally to get the, the Democratic Party in line going into 2024, because it's not about the all, you know, comparing him to the almighty. It's about comparing him to the alternative. And that's focus number one. Yeah, no, you're right. We got to get folks revved up. Got to get them excited because we know Democrats love excitement. We like our shiny objects and we yeah. love to say, I'm not, I'm not excited. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? We that. don't say, as you just said, Dr. Dabinga, He's better than the alternative. And that's where we got to get people uh, in this race coming up in 2024. And the good news is we have a lot of time to get that done. Thank you so much, Chris. Always a pleasure, my friend, to see you. Dr. Uh, Dabinga, always a pleasure. Make sure you pick up a copy of his book if you've not done so. It's called The Lies About Black People. It's sold everywhere. Books are sold. Uh, when we come forward, we're going to be talking about reparations and why is it in the news and what does it mean to have uh, lawsuit dismissed in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the same time that California has made 115 recommendations on how to address racial atrocities that folks in the state of California have experienced uh, when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. A July 4th injunction that places extraordinary limits on the government's communications with tech companies undermines initiatives to harden social media companies against election interference and the dissemination of lies related to elections. Now, this is according to civil rights groups and academics. Well, Native American advocates are now calling on universities built on tribal lands to make reparations for massive plots of land, they say, was unjustly taken from tribes for university campuses, including the University of Minnesota, which occupies 94,000 acres sold to the university for a fraction of what it's worth. Native American tribes say it's time for universities to pay up. The United States attempted to provide reparations to Native Americans before to show gratitude to Native Americans who served in World War II in 1946. Congress created the Indian Claims Commission to compensate federally recognized tribes for stolen land. The commission, which was active until 1978, paid out $1.3 billion. An Oklahoma judge threw out a lawsuit Friday that sought reparations for victims and descendants of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, thwarting efforts by local advocates to seek justice for the attack's last three living survivors and Black Tulsa residents at large. Lawyers for the survivors of the Greenwood massacre held a press conference today and have vowed to fight what they say is an outrageous and unjustified decision. Nearly two years after Congress finalized the first in a series of measures to improve the nation's aging infrastructure and combat climate change, some GOP lawmakers who originally tried to scuttle the spending are now welcoming it. They have privately courted newly available federal money to improve their local roads, bridges, pipes, ports, and internet connections. And they have publicly celebrated when their cities and states have secured a portion of the aid. 
For many voters under 35 years of age, especially those on the left, the Supreme Court has become a political issue in the same way that climate change, gun violence, and immigration have over the course of the past two decades. The court's recent rulings, along uh, with last year's decision striking down the right to abortion established in 1973, uh, the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, could prompt more young people to be active in next year's presidential and congressional elections. Well, the hard right House Freedom Caucus voted to remove Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a conservative rabble rouser, who in recent months allied herself or allied herself with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy following a spat she had with other members of the group. And colleges are scrutinizing race-based financial aid after the affirmative action ruling. Uh, Missouri, The Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey has announced that uh, immediately after the court's decision that he had put dozens of universities and municipalities across the state of Missouri on notice to immediately cease any use of what he calls illegal discriminatory race-based policies. He said relevant institutions must stop using race-based standards to make decisions about things such as admissions, scholarships, programs, and even employment. Well, you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. And this is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we go behind the headlines. We dig deeper. Uh, we bring you the real story uh, on those topics that people are talking about. And today, that topic is reparations, whether it's Native Americans demanding reparations from major universities like the University of Minnesota or the survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 using the courts trying to find some repair for the harm that was done to that community or the California State or the California Reparations Task Force release of its much anticipated reparations report. It seems that reparations is top of the mind for many folks, and it is daily being reported on in the news. So in this hour, we're going to talk to some experts about where we are in this country as it relates to reparations, both at the local level, at the state level, uh, and also what's going on in Congress. We also want to talk about these two particular occurrences. So you have a state judge in Oklahoma dismissing a lawsuit. This is the second lawsuit uh, for reparations that has now been dismissed by judges in that state. And juxtapose that with this 1,000-page reparations report that was <clears throat> recently released by the California Reparations Task Force that contains over 115 recommendations uh, about, you know, regarding everything from education to health care to mass incarceration. And I ask our experts, uh, how do we jive, if it's possible, or reconcile what's happening in Oklahoma with what's happening in California and what's happening around the country. And why is reparations all of a sudden getting so much media attention? And does it mean that we're finally, finally going to have a breakthrough as it relates to repairing the harm that was done and is continuing 
to African-Americans in this country as a result of chattel slavery and the vestiges of chattel slavery. When we come forward, my experts weigh in right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Joining me in this hour is attorney and California Task Force member, California Reparations Task Force member, Don Tamaki, and reparations expert, frequent contributor to Ariva Martin in Real Time and professor at the University of Oklahoma, Dr. Carlos Hill. Thank you both so much for joining me. I couldn't think of uh, any uh, two people that I wanted to talk to on this day. Uh, you, both of you, experts in this field, so much is happening around reparations. So uh, Dr. Hill, I'll start with you. Friday, this judge in Tulsa, Oklahoma, state court judge dismisses the public nuisance lawsuit for the survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. We know in the early 2000s, the federal civil rights lawsuit that had been filed on behalf of those uh, survivors was taken all the way to the Supreme Court and dismissed. So we have that happening in Tulsa. And then, Don, we have the California Reparations Task Force releasing this much-anticipated 1,000-page report making 115 recommendations on how California can right the wrongs of chattel slavery and all the vestiges of slavery. I, I think all of our heads are spinning, uh, Dr. Hill, in terms of what's happening around reparations. Obviously, a lot is happening, but give us some sense of where we are in this moment in history as it relates to reparations. I think you're right to talk to ask the question, what is happening? Because it, it truly is confusing. Um, you can have in California a governor um, and, a, and, a, and a California state house that's committed to doing something significant around reparations, but you have in Oklahoma a state committed to not only not pro providing reparations, but not even teaching the history of the massacre, correct? We have a superintendent of education who would say that the Tulsa race massacre was not about race. So we mm. can't we can't have a conversation about reparations if we can't even be honest about why the race massacre happened in the first place. It was white supremacy. It was racism. It was discrimination. Our superintendent of of education, Ryan Walters, um, believes that's wrong. And so if we can't even in, in, in Oklahoma, right, be honest and acknowledge, we certainly can't um, provide reparations. And of course, that's, we you know, the, the, the public nuisance um, opening that we hoped for, Mario DeMario De Solomon Simmons, the lawyer heading that case, we hoped that he would be able to uh, get reparations for not all uh, survivors, but the three known survivors, Rep just restitution for them. And, and under a law that was used to get billions of dollars, right, for Oklahomans who, who suffered during the opioid crisis, there wasn't enough empathy for Black people, three Black survivors in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So we live in very different worlds. In California, there's a significant effort underway to provide reparations for slavery in a state that had a, a, a minimal history. But in Oklahoma, where the deadliest attack on Black on a Black American's neighborhood occurred, we can't get restitution and probably never will. And so we live in really a confusing time in this country where in some places you can teach about the history, other places you can't. Yeah. And I want to say with this case, because, uh, 
Dr. Hill, something I've been, a couple of articles I read, you're a mayor, so you got your superintendent who says it wasn't even about race, and I'll let you tell us what his theory is. I'm, I'm just curious to know what his theory is about why that massacre occurred, but your mayor apparently is saying he doesn't want to pay reparations, or I, I read something about a tax on citizens in the, the city of, of Tulsa because it would punish individuals who were the victims of the massacre. And I was scratching my head saying, mm, that's an interesting theory. Uh, tell us what your mayor has been saying or what his public stance has been, because politically something could be done, even outside of the legal realm, because that's what we see happening in California. This isn't a massive lawsuit against mm -hmm. the state of California. This is the political apparatus of the state saying we should make this wrong. So likewise in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it could be the city mayor. It could be the city council. It could be the uh, legislative body in that state. But that mayor seems to have some weird theory about why he doesn't want to pay reparations it has something to do with taxing some descendants or survivors. Well, th what the, Mayor Bynum, who's the mayor, current mayor of Tulsa, he has been openly opposed to reparations um, for for victims. He's he's went on record saying that um, his main argument against reparations is that it punishes people today and not the people who actually were involved in the in the violence. But what he fails to realize is that whites who attacked Greenwood and destroyed it weren't just white people. They were connected to the city. They were police officers. They were firemen. The city of Tulsa bears responsibility for that. They didn't just kill people. They destroyed a community. So therefore, the community deserves, not individuals, the community deserves. Because if you destroy the community and institution, you level 40 blocks, that community, not just the survivors, that community deserves restitution. When you destroy intergenerational wealth, as you did in Tulsa, to the tune of more than a half of a, uh, they, the National Geographic estimated Nearly $600 million in wealth was liquidated, right, when the when the Greenwood was destroyed. And those descendants, those, those survivors never saw a dime of that. Mm. And so there is a true debt that is old Greenwood, and it's never going anywhere. Um, and so we have to we have to acknowledge that, right? And 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 so because again, the point, Ariva, is if the city of Tulsa was involved in the destruction of the community, then it's going to take a community-based reparations program to fix what was destroyed. Yeah, and Don, let me have you jump in because I read a quote from you in an NBC article where you addressed this issue of uh, reparations being some kind of handout versus the debt that is old that Dr. Hill is talking about. Help us you know, put in perspective why people get it wrong when they think that, you know, when they make this argument, well, we didn't do it. These were our ancestors that burned the city, or these were our ancestors that held uh, African-Americans in slavery. So we shouldn't be, quote unquote, punished for the conduct or the actions of our ancestors. Why is that 
an illogical argument and a, and a wrong way to frame reparations. Well, a lot of this has to do with how buried this history is, uh, as Professor Hill's uh, work illustrates. Uh, this is erased, buried history. People commonly think slavery ended in 1865, uh, but it just simply morphed into one form of racial pathology or another that continued through the next century and the decades to follow to exclude um, African-Americans in, in just about every sector that matters. So part of this is just pure ignorance. And uh, many states, as you just recounted, are in the process of continuing to erase that and to ban books and to regulate how teachers teach history. So the narrative comes out that um, if you try hard in America, you can make it. And uh, slavery was a long time ago. But the level, the playing field is level now. And uh, if you can't make it in America, it's your own damn fault. Mm -hmm. And it's really it, one of the um, important things about the California Reparations Task Force is it published this exhaustive 1,100-page um, study, uh, essentially uh, drawing a through line from 246 years of enslavement another 90 years of Jim Crow racial terror and exclusion, and decade after decade after decade of systematic exclusion. And, uh, you know, the public is just now a little bit learning about Tulsa, thanks to people like Professor Hill uh, and Ariva, you. Uh, but largely, it's been buried. And one, I have to say, I thought I knew something about American history. But after working on this massive, comprehensive, exhaustive report, you know, Greenwoods and Tulsa, the history littered with it. And in California and in other states, it wasn't the only one. And so, uh, and that's just one example of erasure. Uh, but we have modern day uh, examples of destructions of entire uh, African-American communities. For instance, between 1949 and 1973, there were approximately 2,500 eminent domain projects in which cities could declare an area blighted and then uh, remove it to make way for freeways, for industries, for upscale residential developments. And so between that period of time, there were you know well over 2,500 of these projects in 992 cities. A million people were displaced and uh, two-thirds of that population that were displaced were African-American. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in the Fillmore District in San Francisco in 1956, um, the city declared uh, the Fillmore District blighted, and 20,000 African-American people were displaced, almost 900 Black businesses destroyed. Uh, and this happened over and over again. And so... Uh, on the one hand, we're talking about something that happened a long time ago, uh, Tulsa and Greenwood, horrific. But then this type of uh, destruction and uh, denial and erasure of wealth that Professor Hill just mentioned happened time and time again into modern times. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that the public is simply, on the one hand, has not wanted to acknowledge. A lot of it has to do with willful amnesia and rewriting history. Other, other parts of it are just simply ignorance. And so part of the struggle is to 
uh, get the story out there. So I'm, I'm, we're grateful for uh, folks like Professor Hill that are shining a light on this very history, and also uh, you, Oriva, for um, uh, amplifying the story. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Don. And, and Professor Hill, you're just meeting Don, but Don, in addition, you know, is a lawyer, very, uh, you know, esteemed lawyer, sat the only non-Black person on that task force. He was also very much involved in testifying uh, and litigation that led to the reparations that were paid to Japanese Americans. And Professor Hill, we often hear Black folks saying, well, the U.S. paid Japanese Americans. How come it's such a struggle to get reparations for Black folks? What? How does that conversation, you know, how do we frame what happened in the U.S. around Japanese Americans? And, and you know, what's its relevance to this movement for reparations around Blacks today? Hmm. You know, that is a particular history there, Reva. Um, of how um, those who were interned in internment camps across Western United States were able to, um, over time, get uh, a modicum. I mean, we're not talking about what what they lost. We're talking about a modicum, um, and we we call that reparations. Um, I don't know if we can truly say right there was repair done. But there was a payment made. Um, we could even call it symbolic because it was not, it did not in any way repair or remunerate for what um, those Japanese attorneys lost and what they returned to. Um, and so I, I, I struggle to call it reparations now, but they did receive, right? In the cases where Black people, have received some form of remuneration. Um, it's been in Florida, when we're talking about specifically racial violence, it's been in Rosewood, around the Rosewood massacre. Uh, that's the most significant effort. But now uh, we have in California this effort. Um, I, it, it's, re it's really, really difficult, uh, if not impossible, for reparations for Black people to occur because there's such a resistance. It's the same the same thing that Mayor Bynum says about punishing and taxing taxpayers today. That's the standard line for reparations. Reparations is thought of as a punishment, not as something that is healing. And so when I talk about reparations, I'm, I'm talking about potentially there being payments for survivors if the survivors believe that's what is necessary because any reparations program has to be rooted in and based upon what survivors, victims, and their descendants want, not what the state wants for them. And so we have you have you're often at loggerheads because you have a state to say we have no responsibility for what happened and you say communities communities say well no this history shows up every day in terms of police brutality in terms of the ways in which black people are treated but you uh, you say that there that there is no connection to the past and the present and so we just have fundamentally ultimately fundamentally different ways of understanding the way in which the past shows up and and we just have it in this country for some reason when it comes to black people and violence been able to say i'm sorry and agree to do what to to repair what was done like it's a simple thing but it, it's 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 we currently <laughs> simple, don't have but yet so profound right and so elusive uh seems so simple for us to agree 
on a certain set of facts around slavery and the impact of Jim Crow laws and policies that have excluded Black folks, but uh, not so at all. When we come forward, uh, Don, I want to ask you about the California Reparations Task Force didn't include a particular dollar amount to be paid. And we know that issue of payment is one that causes a lot of uh, you know discussion, a lot of arguing, a lot of fighting over what should be a payment, should a payment be made. And I want to talk about what the California Task Force did and how you all got to that decision not to include a specific dollar amount in your recommendations. Do you think that uh, is going to help the legislature move forward uh, in, in a way that hopefully is, is swifter than otherwise would have been? Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and we're talking about reparations with two of the nation's leading experts, Dr. Carlos Hill, professor at the University of Oklahoma, and Don Tamaki, he's a lawyer. He was involved in the reparations case uh, involving Japanese and internees, as well as he was the only non-African American on the California Reparations Task Force. And we know the task force in California is out with this thousand plus page report 115 recommendations, but no specific recommendation about money uh, in terms of cash payments to African-Americans. So Don, how did the task force get to that? We saw San Francisco that issued a, a report a little earlier this year. They said $5 million for certain eligible black folks in San Francisco. And we've seen uh, some others doing reparations work come out with a specific dollar amount. How come you, the, the reparations task force in California, how come you guys did not come out with the dollar amount for cash payments? Well, just to be clear, you know, we did issue recommendations for 115 proposals for repair, and they do include individual compensation. In other words, there has to be, you know, one of the five principles of, of, of reparations is compensation. And that amount has to be a meaningful amount. Um, you're right, absolutely, Professor Hill. The payments that were made to Japanese Americans did not amount to actual damages, because if you do the actual, do the math on that, the, pay, the, the amount is huge for, you know, lost businesses, lost houses, lost opportunities, some people even lost their lives in those concentration camps. Uh, but it was meaningful atonement, put it that way, a financial atonement. Um, but we did not make a specific, uh, set a specific amount like San Francisco. And here's one of the reasons why. There are 115 proposals ranging from individual compensation to things like healthcare reform and housing. For example, in San Francisco in 2021, the black infant mortality rate is five times the rate of white babies in a major metropolitan area. And so um, the, the, we did not say that individual compensation should be prioritized uh, over, for example, uh, reducing the black infant mortality rate. Um, we did hire four economists to do calculations in, in five areas in which there's data to make an economic calculation. As you all know, in so, in so much of the harm, there's there's no data, it's not economically calculable in terms of the loss. How do you put an economic number on lynching, for instance, or decade after decade after decade of racial segregation in schools? But there are areas in which there is data. Eminent domain is one of them where uh, you can actually calculate the houses 
that were owned by African Americans, the amount uh, they were worth, what the owner was paid, whether they ever became homeowners again, and what the value of that land is now. And uh, in a, mass incarceration is another area. Healthcare uh, li uh, 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 disparities in 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 the uh, life expectancy. You can you there, there's a way to come up with the methodology, and so the economists did that. And when you do those calculations, as you can imagine, the number is enormous. It is breathtaking. It is astounding. And uh, but when you think about it, of course that's the case. We were just to take uh, one community, like I mentioned, the Fillmore District in San Francisco, of eminent domain, where 20,000 black people lost their homes. That number is a staggering sum. And so uh, there's a sticker shock element to this. And that is to say that's never been done before in America anywhere, <laughs> where, where um, a, a government body is actually did a, uh, you know, uh, did an economic analysis of what the loss is. And we felt and we feel that America should know. America right. should know the extent of the economic loss. But the exact amount uh, is a legislative function. And we're asking the legislature to wrestle with these 115 proposals to come up with a feasible approach spanning years. So unlike... Um, for example, the Japanese American reparations effort, where it's more or less a one and done, done. Mm -hmm. the the harm is so enormous mm -hmm. that it has to span many years, and these were harms that were literally centuries in the making. So the repairs have to be long in the implementation. So we're talking every year. Some part of this budget in California is dedicated to uh, addressing the proposals uh, that the task force has put forth. And we welcome other um, proposals of people who have a better idea too about how, uh, what California can do to, to fix what it did, what it's role right. this harm was. So uh, Professor Hill, one thing that ha we know that this task force that Don is on, and thank you, Don, for the tremendous work that you did and the task force did and the pioneering work that you're doing, this came about around the time that the country was having the racial reckoning. I've talked to several of the legislators who sit on that task force with Don, and uh, you know there is some concern that we are in a different period in our country and in our state, even with those that consider themselves Democrats and liberals, and that some of the activity around reparations that's happening today, that's you know coming to a conclusion that that work may not have even been started if things were today, you know, if, if they were just getting started today, if we had not had that racial reckoning. So I, I wonder what you're thinking in this moment about how far even a, a liberal blue state like California might be willing to go in terms of implementing a program that, as Don just said, is going to be enormous from a financial standpoint. It's going to cause a massive backlash because we know whenever there's progress, when any Whenever anything happens that appears to be progress for Black folks, there is a, a counter-reaction. There's a backlash. So are you feeling hopeful that in this moment, in this country, that we can really move forward with addressing some of these systemic problems around health care, 
criminal justice reform. Uh, and, and, and eminent domain in particular, let me just say this, that's the one that as a lawyer, I scratch my head because Don already said there's like 2,000 or more of these takings that have happened. And if we were to undo all of these takings, I mean, we're talking billions and billions of dollars, highways that you know, cut through communities all over this country. So, I mean, this is huge if we were to really say we're going to take this on. You think America's ready? I guess is what I'm asking you. <laughs> is is the America that just said no more affirmative action? That just said women can't have abortions? Is this the America that we're asking to repair the harm from slavery? Yeah, I mean, Ariva, there are many Americas. We are a country of 400 million people. Um, there are many Americas, but uh, I think there's hope for California. Right. California, like Texas, is leading the charge for the browning of America. And if this is what the browning of America will will uh, will is for telling us that we will get to these kinds of politics. Right. Um, I'm hopeful. Right. Um, but for the rest of America, where and particularly rural America, um, where it seems to be, be not only be a backlash, but a white lash against all these uh, progressive policies that we have held dear for a generation. Um, we're seeing support there, right, lessen, more resentment and rage there. You asked, uh, my dear brother, earlier, why was not there a particular dollar amount, right, in the a part of the legislation? Well, I think it's because they wanted the legislation, or excuse me, a part of this, uh, these recommendations. Well, I think it's because you want the recommendations to be supported. The quickest way um, to get um, those recommendations to be um, sort of attacked is to give it a dollar figure, a dollar amount, right? Something for opponents of it to, to seize upon and to say, that's not right, that's not fair, or to say, that's not enough. And so keeping a dollar figure out is a way to, I think, ultimately get traction and support and let the fiscal amount be something determined by the community, right? Or in the process, right? Because again, as what Don said, that's so important is that this has got to be a commitment, a generational commitment. If the crime or if the abuse occurred over time, the repair has to occur over time. So in America, we want a transaction. We want to give people the payments and you go away. Mm -hmm. That's not true reparations, right? Mm -hmm. We are communities. We have to heal as communities, right? And that's where the hard work is, is what, what the, what the uh, committee or the, 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 the group that came together to come up with these, these proposals, that's where many communities need to be, right? Building through coming together, trying to figure out this history, what we have done, how we can resolve what we've done, how to make our community whole instead of parts of our community whole, that's what the reparations is about. It's not about giving people money. Yeah, and Can I ask about uh, Arriva? Go ahead, jump in. So the, um, you know, the Japanese American redress and reparations effort was a 20 year movement. And when we first started this journey, America had two answers, no and hell no. <laughs> and so, but, Somehow, some way, you know, the, the needle of public opinion shifted. And uh, we did start an endorsement campaign of reparations among 
organizations, uh, mainly in California. And the surprising thing is is that many mainstream organizations have signed on and it's growing. So there are 333 endorsing organizations, including, for example, uh, the Los Angeles County Bar Association, mm -hmm. uh, one of the largest bars in the nation, uh, and, and Sacramento and Sa uh, San Francisco and Alameda County Bar Associations have joined. Uh, the California Wellness Foundation, the Weingart Foundation, two um, billion-dollar philanthropies, uh, many faith organizations, community and social service organizations have signed on, and um, and it's multiracial. There are of uh, 333 organizations signing on. There's 60 that are Asian uh, American, and 40 of those are Japanese American groups who know that uh, that this has to be uh, uh, a racial pathology has to be addressed uh, from whence it originated, which is 1619. And so uh, that's never happened before. You know, not that one endorsement list uh, makes the difference, but it is some indication that uh, this discussion is, is penetrating the mainstream as never before. That's not happened before. And we're hoping to grow that effort, push that out to hundreds and if not thousands of organizations. And so I'm hopeful. I, I have a, a sense that there is something different in the air right now. That's happening. Absolutely. And we all should be hopeful. The work you, you all done, as I said, has just been extraordinary. When we come forward, I do want to talk about the politics of reparations because Again, California is a blue state, so we see something very different happening in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which uh, happens to be, I, I guess you'd call it a red state. And you mentioned Texas, uh, Dr. Hill. In fact, I, I read that Texas is passing legislation to prevent any kind of reparations effort. Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and you're listening to Ariva Martin in real time. I'm your host, Ariva Martin, and in this hour, I'm joined by two of the nation's leading experts on reparations. Don Tamaki is here and Professor Carlos Hill. So I want to talk about the politics of reparations. There is a Texas Republican uh, congressman who introduced a bill to block federal funding to cities and states that enact reparations program. So Congressman Brian Babin introduced H.R. 4321, referred to as the No Bailouts for Reparations Act. And he did this just a couple of days after Juneteenth. And if passed through Congress, this legislation would ban federal financial assistance to state and municipal governments operating reparations programs for black Americans. He calls us out. Uh, he says American taxpayers shouldn't be forced to pay for radical race-based reparation payments to please the woke left. Those are the words of Congressman Brian Babin, Dr. Hill. So when I ask you, is America ready for reparations? I'm talking about folks like Congressman Brian Babin. What is your response to a congressman calling out black Americans, saying that reparations programs you know, are radical and designed to please the woke left? Uh, does that keep you hopeful? Oh, you know, Mariva, this, that posture has been with us for a very long time. What he is saying is not new, but the move that he's trying to make to make it illegal <laughs> to, 
for for cities and municipalities to even consider this making that you know illegal or banning it um that's another that's i mean that's how insidious it's become it's not new it but it's become so insidious because in the you you mentioned earlier we've had a, a racial reckoning maybe due to george floyd and, and and the ways in which we we um our culture um is a bit more sensitive to police brutality uh, or, or or attacks on black people right and we've seen some 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 progressive policies come from that awakening. We've seen Juneteenth legislation passed. We've seen some things that have made us hopeful. But as that has been happening, there's also been a white lash led by Donald Trump and now all of his surrogates who want to be Donald Trump. Mm. And there is this truly the race to the bottom. In Oklahoma, we lead it. Um, it's not just Texas. We are doing many things in, in Oklahoma. We have, I'm going to say this again, a superintendent of public and superintendent of instruction who is saying that we can teach the race massacre, but we can't say, and he wishes he could pass a law. We can't say that it was had anything to do with race or racism. So tell, I was going to ask you earlier, what is his theory? What was the catalyst or the cause for the attack on those very successful and that very thriving uh, Greenwood community? What, what's his theory? Ariva, he doesn't have a theory because he doesn't care. <laughs> he literally does not care. He just doesn't want the truth disseminated or talked about. <laughs> he believes talking about racism is wokeism. Talking about racism is wokeism. Everything has become inverted. So to talk about anything substantive revolving around systematic racial discrimination, right? You're you're being woke. No, I'm being radical real. left woke. You're being real. There are real systemic discrepancies and life chances for black people and white people, white people and Hispanic people, white people and everybody else in this society. And that has to do with systemic racism and discrimination. And that's what Ryan Walters, that's what Brian doesn't want to talk about historically or contemporarily. Mm. And so that is it. That's all we're, it's such a white lash, right? It's not a backlash when it's a white lash. When Brian says after Juneteenth, Two, a few days later, that black people, that everything involving reparations for black people in the state of Texas, we should ban it if it's going to come from a city or a municipality. That's a white lash. Yeah, and Don, so here you have this, this congressman uh, timing this, obviously, the introduction of the bill is coming because there has been a string of victories for the reparations movement. Obviously, the California Reparations Task Force is a victory. Uh, the New York a New York state legislature has passed a bill to create a reparations commission. New Jersey uh, has reparations. Uh, you know, they've, they've done some groundbreaking work. We can go you know, read the role. St. Louis, Missouri, Detroit, so many places around the country are recognizing the need to do this. And here comes this piece of legislation. Do you have any concerns that, that this congressman and, and this bill, which, you know, it's not going to get very far in the Senate, obviously, but that this could have an impact on, say, the governor of California, who has higher aspirations for political office. Because when someone in elected office is going to make a vote to pass legislation 
to make amends to you know reparations they are making a political vote that could cost them uh future elections that could cost them votes by their constituents so do you have any concerns about what's happening in dc and how that might impact what california does particularly our governor i don't have a concern about uh the California governor, Gavin Newsom, or, or on that issue. Uh, it, <clears throat> the bottom line is this. Um, Professor Hill is right. This is an old playbook of demagoguery. And the three elements are appeals to prejudice, fearmonger and scapegoat, and number three, uh, engage in conspiracy theories, fake news. And there's much to be gained by that. There's a lot of political uh, currency in stoking racism. Uh, it's not only gets people elected, but it's profitable. <laughs> and uh, whether it was enslavement or the decades of exclusion of uh, separating uh, America into white and black neighborhoods, it was profitable to do that. And so there is an element in, in our society among the leadership that will continue to pander that. But as you pointed out, uh, the number of locales that are seriously considering reparations, the number of groups are they're saying, it's time, it's time to study this, at least, and begin to address it. That's never happened before. And so I think we have to keep our eye on the ball. Uh, but we also have to come up with a counter narrative to each of these arguments. For example, as you pointed out, there were people saying, well, I wasn't an enslaver. I did not participate in eminent domain. I didn't make those decisions. But again, to reiterate, Professor Hill, this is a societal debt. And America, our taxes go to pay for societal debts uh, all the time, <laughs> whether it's for wars, whether it's for um, uh, societal wrongs, uh, natural disasters, human-caused catastrophes, uh, social security, pensions, you know, in, in 2012, Associated Press did a study on federal payments and discovered that the government is still making payments to descendants of Civil War veterans. I mean, these are societal deaths. Mm -hmm. And because of the hand-in-glove participation between individuals and government, uh, it makes them a societal debt. I think Professor right. Hill touched upon this. This is not yeah. individual wrongs. This is systemic and right. sanctioned by government. And I think we, we shouldn't leave out of this conversation the benefits that white America reaped and continues to reap because of slavery and Jim Crow laws and these policies that have excluded black folks. So white folks shouldn't act like they are not the beneficiaries or, or, or of free, these policies. Or free, freeways and upscale developments and all of these things through eminent domain, it enhanced the productivity and the wealth of entire regions. Yes. But it was done at the expense of one particular group. Ooh. That makes it a societal debt, not yeah. an individual debt. We are out of time. Thank you both. Uh, incredible conversation. I know I'm a lot smarter as a result of it. I'm sure my listeners are as well. Dr. Carlos Hill, professor at the University of Oklahoma, and Don Tamaki, an attorney and a task force member on that California Reparations Task Force. I'm going to continue this conversation because there's going to be a lot more to come on reparations.